From the Mecca Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where institutional religion meets Jesus Christ face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Well, it's the last show of the year, December 30th, 2014, 8 p.m. Mountain Time to 9 p.m. We're going to wrap up our last segment on eternal punishment. Whether it's a biblical tenet or not, we're going to wrap the year up and launch next Tuesday night to a completely new year and approach. Before we get into it, I want to share an email I received from Bunny, uh, an individual who dislikes Mormonism greatly. I typically don't read entire emails, but uh, I usually summarize what they have to say. But all things considered, I think Bunny's email ought to be read in total. Uh, every now and then these come through. It, they're interesting, and it pushed my buttons to want to drop the F-bomb more than any email I've received in the past few years. This is what it says. It begins with Merry Christmas. Now, <clears throat> you'll understand why this bothers me so much as we read on. It says, in July of 2013 on your show, you stated that you were repenting for having gotten off track and spent seven months attacking evangelical Christianity. You stated it was time to change and that you needed to get back to the heart of the matter by declaring you would keep rooted and grounded in focusing on a church that was not God's, namely Mormonism, end quote. Let me pause here just for a second with a comment. There are religious institutions and politicians uh, that go to great lengths to gauge every word that they say. Why do they do that? Because they want you to trust them. So they, they're very, very careful on what they say. In the introductory pages of Born Again Mormon, I quote Walt Whitman, who said something to the effect of, my words mean nothing, but the gist of them mean everything. And I have no fear on stepping on my own nose uh, or contradicting myself or changing directions at the drop of a dime because I don't want people to trust me. I'm not here to influence you to trust me. I'm not trustable. Uh, neither are you. Jesus is trustable. So that's been our message from the, from the get-go. And so if I change my mind, I change directions. I've heard that people are commenting that I used to teach the Trinity. I did. I've changed my mind. That happens. So I'm fallible. Maybe I'm wrong in a direction. Maybe I'm not. But I'm going to pursue and do what I can. And uh, if it suits you, fine. If it doesn't, but it doesn't matter to me because I don't want you to trust me. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow the king. She continues. Ultimately, it appears that all that happened at that time was that you paused, retrenched, and went after the evangelicals anew. Uh, but it's all with the goal to reach the LDS who are coming out and helping them to understand what church to look for, what to examine in churches. 
The next paragraph is really interesting to me. She says, in the past year and a half, your tactics have become more extreme, strident, loud, zealous with every passing week. This uh, statement of hers reinforces to me the notion of how powerful our individual perceptions are upon us. This is a woman who believes, compared to how I was on previous shows, uh, when we were on television here in Utah, that I am more ardent, more extreme, more loud, more zealous now than I was then. And I think that the evidence will prove she's absolutely wrong. Uh, I, am, uh, I might do some strange things still, but I am far more calm now than I ever was, but she wants to believe that because she doesn't like what I'm doing. Those who want to hear what I have to say claim that I've calmed down. Those who don't say that I'm more aggressive than ever before. But Bunny does give us an example. She says, I think the dramatic climax happened early this year with Silence. That's a show where we didn't say anything. By the way, the reason that we did that silent show is because there was so much being said online and in this community about the ministry that anything I said was being taken out of context. That's why we did that show, followed by the Inquisition. Sean, personally, I am very melodramatic myself, but the moment was utterly self-absorbed and beyond the pale. It had the atmosphere of a modern-day martyrdom and was not at all humble. Since then, you have doubled down and spent the past nine months completely marginalizing yourself and your ministry. I have marginalized myself from the beginning of doing this show. Don't you get it? Can't you see? Read between the lines. I do it all the time. It's all to say we are men. And, 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 to, to, and anybody who gets up and thinks that they are unmarginalizable... They're nuts. I don't care if it's Thomas Monson or the Pope or your pastor or me or anybody else. Men are fallible. They're marginable. They change their mind. They're weak. We're sinful. All of that stuff. And so we have, from the very beginning of doing the show, shown we're, we're idiots. And we're not going to put pretense up. You say I'm marginalizing myself now. I've been doing it from the beginning. And I'll do it again because we refuse to play along with the games and structures, and we're going to probe and question and challenge. Despite, she says, having declared you repented and focused uh, your stated mission from God, refocused your stated mission from God, you have instead changed the mission of HOTM from where Mormon meets biblical Christianity face-to-face -to, -face to where religion meets Jesus Christ face-to-face, -face, whatever that means. You know what it means, Bunny? Where institutional religion meets Jesus Christ face to face. It's the thing that Jesus did when he was on the earth. He did. It's where he faced the institutionalized religionists, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they came and they had their religion and their institution and it met him face to face. That's what it means, Bunny. I hope you're going you're gonna to be able to understand that. As of today, you've spent six hours discounting the traditionally held Christian idea that hell is an eternal punishment. Seriously, she writes, six hours. Do you honestly think the average viewer of your show is interested enough in your interpretation of the damned's tenure in hell to watch even one full hour of your explanation of its meaning, much less six hours? And it's here that Bunny strikes the chord that wants me to drop the F-bomb. And 
she continues to strike it as we continue to go along. Personally, she says, I think it's ludicrous to think hellfire would be eternal. But even my unconventional view doesn't interest me enough to compel me to listen to your scripture-supported rationale. Aha, so we begin to discover the mindset. Bunny personally believes that hellfire is a fail. Eternal hell is a fail. And it's, that's all that matters. What Bunny thinks. It's what Bunny thinks. Her decisions have been made. Don't muddle the conversation with facts or with scripture or disproving or proving the point. Just spout what we all individually think and let's just all just go our own way and then shut up, she's saying, and entertain me. Well, I think, I think, who cares what we think? That's the point of our show. It's not what I think. It is what I think is in scripture. And I give you the scripture and then you look at it and you say, I don't think it says that. Or I disagree or I agree. So we're using the scripture. It's not what I think. It's what I think the scripture is saying and then you challenge that. This has been the approach since we stepped foot in this game where biblical Christianity meets Mormonism face to face. It's been about what the Bible says compared to what men are saying. She writes, this is just an example of the rants you've gone on for months on end. 13 hours on has Jesus returned. Five hours on soteriology. The only soteriology this atheist wants to hear about is Mormon soteriology. Now I get it. This atheist who opens up with Merry Christmas. Now we get to the idiocy of Bunny. We have an almighty atheist. She knows God does not exist. Why Bunny has looked under every rock and in every encyclopedia and every star and seen God is not there. She's omnipotent. She's the atheist. And she thinks that she doesn't want, in my opinion, what's happened is she is seeing that we are giving good reason as why to not be an atheist. That we are showing how hell is not eternal. And we've given it good biblical sound and this is driving her nuts. She wants us to go back to the animus against Mormonism. She wants us to spend our time on that because the stuff we are doing is taking her anger at Christianity and it's diffusing it. Because we're showing the Bible has never taught what people have said about hell being eternal and, and all these other things. We're and it's, it's bothering Bunny. So she's petitioning us, get back. She continues, you are no longer producing a show that is interesting uh, uh, to any significant audience. We've never pandered for uh, ratings, Bunny. We've just tried to teach the truth. She goes on, is this about following your God-directed mission or providing the soapbox for you to stand upon and rant incessantly? No one is hearing you, Sean. In a word, Sean, your show has become boring. And sadly, I no longer watch it. I used to be really entertained by you as you railed against the Mormons. But now you just ignore the disaster that is called the Mormon cult and instead spend all your time harping upon the differences between Lutherans and Calvinism that don't matter to most Christians and are lost on all Mormons. How do you ever expect to convert me and my ilk, meaning atheists, 
much less draw Mormons away from their cult if you are literally boring us away. If you and those of your ilk have not bought into it yet, Bunny, if you've seen all the shows, you're not going to buy into it uh, through anything else that I do. She writes, have you forgotten how damaging that cult is? She's got some anger against the Mormons. I get it. We have 400 plus programs that clearly articulate the damage that Mormonism has done. But to me, preaching a gospel where God wants to damn most of his uh, uh, creations to hell for eternity, or a, a, a gospel where people are on, are on edge waiting for Jesus to return and have been for 2,000 years, uh, that's just as damaging in my opinion. That's just as damaging. She says, Sean, I really like you and enjoy your style, but your show has become tedious and I want to be entertained. I know you know that's ultimately the reason people watch TV. They want to be entertained. I know I am stating my message very direct way and I know you can handle my candor. Hopefully you will consider my conduct, uh, comments and then in the most convoluted manner, uh, this atheist ends her rant with, Happy, happy Christmas. I wish you joy and peace the remainder of the holiday season, exclamation point. God help us all. That's all I, you know, that's all I can say to that. Um, she wants to be entertained. I, I am really tempted. Something would have to happen. If it does, I want to change heart of the matter. This may be the last heart of the matter ever. I don't know. It could be. It's not that it's going to go away, but I want to change it, and then we're going to call the show The Boring Show. We're going to call it The Boring Show because it's not going to be here to entertain you. It's going to be here to inform you. And if you don't find information enticing and engaging and educational and necessary and boring, turn the channel, don't log in, go somewhere else, but that's kind of the direction that we're going to go. Okay, here we go. Um, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll finish this off this year. Lord, we seek your spirit, your help, your guidance as we talk about this last thing. Open up eyes, open up hearts. Forgive the things that I say that are not right, that are wrong, and uh, help the, erase those things from people's minds. But the things that are true, let them remain. Pray for this now in Jesus' name, amen. For the most part, I'm going to wrap all of this stuff up, throwing all the thoughts and some strange observances that I think support the idea that God desires and will redeem all people to himself in one way or another uh, over the idea that God desires to destroy most people in hell forever or that God desires to save everybody but can't because Satan and men trump his ability. In other words, I'm going to toss out a number of random ideas that I think support God's total reconciliation of all people over the traditional Christian teaching that endorses eternal punishment. For example, the container that holds God's wrath. Have you ever considered this? I think it's noteworthy that in describing the container that holds God's wrath, the Bible uses an item of limited scope and size rather than an endless flowing amount. 
What is it that holds God's wrath in Scripture? It's a cup. It's a cup of wrath. A cup. That's a measured amount of wrath. In fact, it's a relatively small amount of wrath. Scripture doesn't say that God's wrath is never-ending river of wrath or a bombardment of constant wrath. It says it's a cup of wrath. Have you ever thought of that? Uh, Have you ever wondered about this? Jesus, referring to the certainty of afterlife punishment, also used descriptions of limited duration when speaking of what people who go to hell or the lake of fire would experience. Remember when he was talking about some being beaten with a few stripes and some being beaten with many stripes? Do you remember that, that language? Now, to me, once whether it's a few stripes or many stripes are delivered, what happens? If someone who's being beaten with a few stripes and the few stripes are given... You do it again? You, do, you, you deliver a few stripes again? And you stop and wait? And then you do a few stripes again for eternity? He says a few stripes. Something must get better once those, uh, those stripes have been delivered. How come he describes it this way? What about Jesus when he says that he gives an illustration. He talks about people going in pain. Uh, they won't come out until they have paid the uttermost farthing. They won't come out until they have paid the uttermost farthing. But there is an idea that they will come out. Have you ever considered that one? Why does Scripture say that? What does it mean? Admittedly, these teachings can be taken in various ways. And they're not the best proofs for total reconciliation. I get that. But they do add to the overall picture that we have been sharing for the past number of weeks. Why not try to incorporate them as well into the argument? Then there's always the question of when is enough torment enough? We know from our study last week that the lake of fire torments occur in the presence of the Lamb and His holy angels. We know that is the location. So let's suppose that there's a man and he's lived a fairly respectable life, but he was never open to the saving message of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And let's say he's guilty of the average number of sins that a typical American male or whoever is uh, guilty of committing, stole some things as a kid, uh, sex with some girls when he was a teenager, uh, mean to a neighbor, just, the, just the, 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 the typical type of sins that most men are capable of creating. And uh, granted, he's without excuse. We know that. And I get this, and I know that judgment waits, Okay. We also know the man did reject the Holy Spirit, which was calling to him to believe on God's solution, his son. A crime worthy of of some sort of punishment or redirection. I get this too. No denying it. But the question is, how much time is enough for the crimes that have been committed by this man? Now, I understand fairly well that the Christian argument is God is outside of time. Have you ever heard that as a Christian? There is no time when speaking of God. I've used this. He doesn't stand within time. He's out time of the time-space continuum. We love to say that, right? So the discussion is really too big to articulate tonight. But what most Christians don't realize is this is not taught in the Bible. This is a philosophy of men. Where did it come from? 
God is. We know that. Scripture is replete with example that he cares and he's involved in time. If you read through scripture, we see God using time and involved in time with human beings. Where did the idea come from that God is outside of time? Plato. It's from the Greeks. Uh, Augustine admits, who had a great influence over Christianity, he admits that he incorporated Greek thought into his explanation of what Christianity is. Think about this. Christian recite ideas like God is outside of time, God is timeless, God exists in, in the eternal now, uh, God was never, God never was nor ever will be, God has no past, God has no future. Guess what? All of that comes from Plato. All of it. None of it comes from the Bible. Okay? So we have taken those Platonic ideas, we've taken Hellenistic thought, and we've applied it because it does make some sense, right? But that's not what the Bible teaches. God is very much involved in time with us. I, you never hear that taught. Back to our unchristian man. Would constant suffering for this man of a hundred years where he was repenting and calling out to God from an honest heart, would that be enough suffering uh, for a just God while he's in the lake of fire? Would that be enough? How about a thousand years? And let's say the lake of fire is miserable torments, as we try to describe it, grinding out, refining, burning light. Would that be enough time? How about a billion light years? Would that be enough time for you? For this man who was recalcitrant and he was rebellious and he didn't accept the Holy Spirit's invitation to receive Christ, is a billion years enough in the lake of fire in the presence of the holy angels and Jesus and Jesus a billion years go by? And is that enough time? Would that allow Jesus to say, okay, I've heard your cries. Now you can come out. Would that be him paying the uttermost farthing? When will God, who is love, say, I receive your bowing knees and your confessing tongue? I receive that now in the name of my son and your repentant heart. After a billion light years, is it possible that a loving God could or would ever say to the repentant man, enter into the eternities now? No, you're not going to be my son and daughter, you know, but you are going, your suffering is going to end. No. Christians say, their suffering cannot end. No. Take your worst enemy. Imagine it. A man, and I'm going to use a man, who rapes and kills and tortures your entire family. Children does this, terrible things to your family. Couldn't think of anything worse. How long would you want him to suffer for the crime that he's perpetrated against your family? How long? I know the knee-jerk reactions. I know the emotional responses. But imagine that you're in charge of the torture of this person. Okay? And you can hear his screams and pleas over a year, 10 years, 30 years, 100 years. And let's not only say that. Let's say that you also can discern when his heart is true. When his heart is really saying, I am really, really sorry. And let's say that you not only know that you can discern that his heart is true, but you understand his mindset and the history of his life that caused him to do such a heinous thing. So you take in all of his history and what he's done to your family. You hear his screams and cries. You hear his repentant heart. 
how long would you want this man who did this to your family to suffer? Now, we're human beings. Maybe some of you would say a thousand years. Maybe some of you say a hundred thousand. I don't know. But let me tell you something. If you have the mindset that that person should suffer forever, you are no different than the man who's, in, who's suffering. You are torturing him the way he tortured your family. Do you get how it doesn't work? Do you see how God is not that way? That his wrath is a cup of wrath. That it's, 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 it's a determined thing and it's purposeful. It is not to beat up and to torture for torture's sake. It is to bring about and to help and to redeem. And if you as a fallen, ugly human being would have someone suffer for 10,000 years and then say, okay, I've had enough. I know you're sorry and I forgive you. If you as a human being would do it, what do you think God will do? How did we allow ourselves to get to this point too? How have we allowed ourselves to push this out to people, to stand on street corners and tell people you're going to burn forever in hell unless you accept things my way? It's just amazing. Along these lines, if a sin cannot ever be paid for, if the sin of not believing in Jesus cannot ever be paid for, how come Jesus suffering for the sins of the world was for such a short period of time? Jesus paid for the sins of the world. And what we say is, well, he, he stepped out of earth time and he moved into an eternal time where his suffering was eternal while he hung on the cross. I don't read that in scripture. I read that he was up there and he suffered. I mean, could it be that a merciful, just God allowed his own son to suffer for the sins of the whole world? for a, that amount of time because he's, he's merciful and that instead of God imposing super long sentences, God actually imposes super short sentences on people? Why do we want to believe he's a God who wants to have long sentences and not look at his mercy and his justice and his love in that and think of he's going to shorten up the sentences? What's interesting is that when I have such conversations with really good Christian people, most of them adamantly respond, the punishment is forever. And I'm always left wondering what drives them to not only believe it, but to want to believe it. That pushes them to think this way. If I didn't know better, I am tempted to actually think that some of them really want people to suffer forever because they don't think like they do. And they can't wait for that. But that couldn't be it, could it? If we try and step away from all the emotional and personal issues tied to the subject, wouldn't a just God assign an appropriate punishment or purging to the appropriate crime? And then we can get rid of all this eternal stuff? Wouldn't he deliver appropriate amounts of discipline until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is the Christ from the heart? And then wouldn't a long-suffering God receive all who have been reformed by this breaking process to redeem them somehow back into his presence? Not as Christians and sons and daughters, but as, as creations that have recognized Christ through their sufferings? This brings us to another point. In light of all we've talked about, maybe we ought to start rethinking about how we view non-believers now. 
and people who have not believed yet instead of them being sinful and evil and headed to hell for eternity. Maybe our mindset ought to be, oh, that's someone who hasn't come to understand Jesus yet. You see, maybe it would be better for us to see them as the yet to be redeemed rather than the lost forever into hell. And uh, they haven't yet confessed his name. Okay, see, here's the thinking. Since Jesus paid for all the sins of the world, past, present, and future, some 2,000 years ago, the issue isn't whether someone's a sinner or not, because sin has been paid for, taken care of by him. The The issue is whether they have come to receive him as the solution to their separation from God. Have people received Christ as the solution to their separation from God? If we say no, then we view them as lost, not sinful not evil, not headed to an eternity in hell, but as lost, needing the information to be found again. Seeing the redemptive work of our king is this, in this manner enables us who are fortunate enough to have heard the call, thank God, to now see those who have yet to believe as lost and unfortunate and beguiled rather than evil and needing to be judged by us. This is an important distinction because when we as believers start looking at the world as the sinful and ourselves as the worthy, we really miss the mark of what Jesus talked about. And when we as believers are able to see the rest of the world as simply failing in faith and therefore lost due to the same blindness that we once had, and we can look on them with empathy, uh, I think humility and gratitude and kindness will go a long way in reaching those people than the other approach that has been used for centuries. In other words, if we can see people as potential candidates for heaven by virtue of the finished work of Christ, wouldn't this attitude go a long way in helping us first love them and then relate to them and then reach them with the good news? Wouldn't this love in us motivate us to be more kind and more reasonably warning them of, the, of things and telling them kindly that you don't want to go and experience the lake of fire, that Jesus saved you? Things like that instead of the threat. Listen, I like the term lost because we know from Scripture that Jesus uses that term, for instance, that a good shepherd would never abandon the search and safe return of those sheep or a sheep that's lost. In Luke 15, 4, Jesus said, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it? Until. And when he's found it, he lays on his show rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, Unto them rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise shall joy be in your heaven over one sinner that repenteth, moreover than the ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. I would strongly suggest that this parable is not only speaking of the house of Israel and or members of the body of Christ today who are um, uh, backslidden, but I think it's speaking of all of mankind, all of humanity, ever, that God does not stop seeking the lost sheep. Otherwise, the parable is kind of really not true. Jesus would say, you know, he goes and he seeks for that which is lost, and he stops 
when they haven't really conformed to what he wants them to do. It's an interesting thing. There are several English words in the King James that we have assigned to the wicked of this world. Lost, perish, and destroyed. Lost, perished, and destroyed throughout the King James New Testament all are used to describe the wicked. For example, Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, Except you repent, you shall likewise perish. Most Christians read perish here and suggest the words mean in the afterlight, hells of, uh, hell of fire, or lake of fire, people will be destroyed and, uh, but never consumed. Uh, is this what Jesus meant? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Do you know what? The, the, do you think this means lost forever? Then James 4.12, it says, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. And so we think all oh, in terms of this destruction, wiped out in the lake of fire. The words certainly sound permanent when we read them in the King James. Lost, perish, destroyed. And they are assigned in hell and they're assigned lake of fire, perishing, purging, all of that. So pastors and teachers, they come across these passages and they teach that afterlife punishment will mean people being perishing, being destroyed, lost, and it's all the same. But here's the deal. There's only one Greek word for all of those words, lost, perish, and destroy. And the Greek word is apulami. And apulami does not mean forever. Apulami just describes someone that's left. Let me give you an example. So, um, if you look at the King James for the lost sheep, when Jesus says, what man of you has a sheep that is lost? The word's apulami. Was that sheep that he gives in his illustration lost forever? No, it was just simply lost. Perish apulami, destroyed apulami, does not mean completely. It does not mean obliterate, it means decimate. It means to be ruined, it means to suffer loss, it means to suffer some destruction, but it doesn't mean total. So, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save those which is lost, apulami, it's those who will be found. And so it goes on and on and on. So compare this description that we have given as God, as a total reconciliationist, with that of the five-point Calvinist and their view, with the Arminianist and their view, the Universalist and their view, and the Latter-day Saint and their view. All those views, take them all in there. Latter-day Saint and Arminius are fairly close. Universalists are like, everybody's going to heaven. And Calvinists are very few are going to heaven. The reconciliationist is able to tie all these other factors in. Free will, God's sovereignty, punishment, true hell, true lake of fire. And it changes it and puts, turns it on its head. This is the God of who is worthy of all honor and glory and allegiance. And every whit of our trust and adoration. One more point, we'll wrap up our seven-part series and the year. Let me close with a few quotes from some famous men. Now, I'm not saying be, that these are to be relied upon, but these are what these men have said about eternal punishment. We're going to take them for what they're worth. They're early church fathers. Now, to prove the idea that total reconciliation had been around for a while, Augustine addresses total reconciliation way back in five, uh, 354 to 430 A.D. 
Augustine did not like people who taught that all people would be reconciled to God. And so he gives a, a, a quote, and this is what he says. And now I see I must have a gentle disputation with certain tender hearts, he calls them, of our own religion, who are unwilling to believe that everlasting punishment will be inflicted, either on all those whom the just judge shall condemn to the pains of hell, or even on some of them. Augustine, he believed in eternal punishment. He believed in literal flames, licking the flesh off people for eternity. He points out, even in 354 AD, people are teaching this. These tender hearts are teaching this. No, no, no. Some of them are going to find out that God is not that way. Let's go on. Listen to Irenaeus, 13, uh, 130 AD, who wrote intimately of Polycarp, and Polycarp was supposed to be a friend of John the Beloved, an intimate friend. So Irenaeus wrote intimately of Polycarp, and he says that he had an intimate belief in, quote, an ultimate reconciliation of all things back to God. That's going way back, and this is what he thought. Clement of Alexandria, a famous church father, this is what he said. The Lord is a propitiation not for our sins only, that is, of the faithful, but also for the whole world. Therefore, he indeed saves all universally, but some as converted by punishments, others by voluntary submission, thus obtaining honor and dignity, that to him every knee will bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, that is to say angels and men and souls who departed this life before coming into this world, end quote. That's from Clement of Alexandria, a great early church father. Listen to Origen, another early church father. He wrote, He that despises the purification of the word of God the doctrine of the gospel only keeps himself for dreadful and penal purifications afterwards. That so the fire of hell may purge him in torments, whom neither apostolical doctrine nor gospel preaching has cleansed, according to that which was written of being purified by fire." But how long this purification which is wrought out by penal fire shall endure, or for how many periods or ages it shall torment sinners, he only knows to whom all judgment is committed by the Father. I could add about 12 other uh, quotes, but from, they're not from his well-known people. But let me wrap it up with Martin Luther. Let's just wrap it up with Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. In a letter to a friend, 1522, Luther said, quote, God forbid that I should limit the time of acquiring faith to the present life. In the depth of the divine mercy, there may be opportunity to win it in the future. That's from the mind of Luther. When Jesus said in John 12, 32, and I... If I be lifted above the earth, will draw all men unto me. He meant exactly what he said. And in the end, all will come to him. Some as joint heirs, sons and daughters, um, 
joint heirs with Christ, Christians, some having gone through hell only to discover that their name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, some purged of self in the lake of fire, but in the end, all in all, just as God intended from before all things. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Robert from Clearwater, Florida. Sean, regarding the early letter, don't waste time on distractions of the unbelievers or let them change your direction. Those that hunger are here listening and you are doing a good job feeding us. We teach God, share God, and this is joyous in the kingdom we serve. Satan uses the loss to distract us, change us to please men and lose focus. Don't change your personal direction God has given you that helps us. Love Jeff and Danbury. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Charlie in Sal, uh, uh, Revelation 11:14. I don't have my Bible. Oh, I have to read it in the old King James. Do you have a Bible? We are getting a Bible right now. Do we have a spot? I didn't ask for one, did I? Uh, line one, Robert in Clearwater, Florida. Robert, what up? Sean, how you doing today? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. I haven't talked to you in a few months. Um, you're wearing that purple shirt again. Last time I talked to you, you were, you were in a purple shirt. Now today, you're wearing the same purple one. You know, I've got I've got about seven of these. Yeah, you said that last time. When, when I find a shirt I like, I just buy a lot of them because I can't usually find them. Hey, I have a question. Um, actually, I have a quick question and a comment. Last week, you were, you were talking about um, some mistranslated words in the Bible, forever and forever, and yeah. like that. So you said there were dozens of places where um, that was mistranslated. Um, just to kind of quickly to bring you up to speed, our lives kind of parallel each other. I was Mormon for 20 years, and then I was Trinitarian, and I, you know, adhere to kind of the oneness doctrine similar to to you. But you know that, that the Mormons say we believe the Bible, be the Word of God, as far as it's translated correctly. Yeah. And wouldn't you say then that what what you spoke of last week gives credence to what they say? that they believe the Bible as far as it's translated correctly because you brought up several instances where it was not translated correctly. Yeah, I, and I do agree with that. I, I used to really get angry because, but see, uh, Robert, if we take this in context of being Mormon or knowing the Mormons, what they do is they have that, and so what they do is they don't take, it, they don't take the Bible seriously at all. And that's different when you say that to a group of people who don't take the Bible seriously and agreeing with that amongst people who take the Bible seriously. So I would agree with the line, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly. I think that's a, I think that's a viable thing. But when it is set, when that is spoken of by the Mormons, that, that is an excuse for them to discount the Bible. So what, <laughs> I mean, what I mean by that is a Christian, and if I'm teaching the Word, and someone has the, uh, the 7th Street Uba Muba, translation and it is just some horrible modern day conflagration of the Bible you know I would say you know I don't really believe that that interpretation let's look at the Greek so I think I, I understand your point I think that actually that's that same statement is true 
But in the Christian world, we're saying as long as, you know, there's a good, solid, strong effort in ancient languages to bring it into the English. The Mormons use that, and it's just, it's a very different story. Well, what about the hardcore Christians that say, we, you know, you go on a lot of church websites, and they say the basic tenets, we believe the Bible to be in the infallible, inherent Word of God. Yeah, what that, they, you know, what scriptures they, God breathed. Um, what yeah, they, I've, I've struggled with that as well. What they mean by that, Robert, is they are not talking about the Bibles that we hold in our hands. If they are, they're absolutely bonkers. Uh, what they mean by that is that the original autographs, God's mouth to Isaiah's ear to the pen that hits the paper, those are infallible and inerrant. Only those. Any uh, Geisler or any of the scholars will say that it's the original autographs we say are inerrant. When we look at translations that we have today from the King James to the NIV to any of them, there are errors, but they're, they're not big. They usually have to do with little markings and vowel markings and, and misdates and a couple things. And, but the problem is, is it, comes, it comes down to some Greek words sometimes. But the Bible is a beautiful, uh, 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 God-inspired, God-breathed, trustworthy to bring anybody to God. So don't think I'm besmirching it. I'm just saying uh, when people say we believe the Bible is infallible and inerrant, they are not talking about what they're holding in their hands. If they are, they really need to understand what the scholars mean when they say that. Okay. And I, just a quick comment. Um, that it, what I found, and I'm going to have the opportunity to talk to an ex-Jehovah's Witness on Friday, and, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, what I've noticed over the last maybe what's come into my consciousness in the last year or so is that I think that the reason that, that people, you know, and I've talked to Mormon missionaries and, you know, this letter that you had from, from uh, Bunny at the beginning of the show really highlights this, that it really doesn't matter if it's religion or if it's politics or anything else. People have this belief and a belief is nothing more than an agreement that that we make through information that we have and the part of our brain that um tells the caveman ten thousand years ago if i go in this cave i may get gored by a saber-toothed tiger get my head ripped off is the same part of our brain that when i would talk to mormon missionaries after i came out of mormonism and i would say that um you know, 61 prophecies of Joseph Smith, 59 of them never came true, and they fold their arms and I don't care what you say, I know the church is true. Yeah. And it's, it's, if they accept that, it, it literally sparks something in their brain that says, I will die. And it's the same exact part of our brain. Huh. And so, but I've learned, you know, over 15 years, I left Mormonism 15 years ago, when you brought up, you know, I always thought Jesus, or that, that uh, Lucifer and Satan were the same. A few months ago, you said, well, no, what about Jerome and the Latin Vulgate? And I go, oh, okay, that makes sense. I, I can agree. I can, I like that, and I can agree to that, because it's not a threat to me anymore. So um, I just wanted to throw that out at you, that, you know, kind of psychologically, when when you were talking about uh, Bunny and her hearing this, an atheist, 
saying this goes against the information that she has and the agreements that she has, and if she accepts this, she, in, in her mind, psychologically, she will die. You, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying consciously she's thinking this, but that, again, right. that certain part of our brain says that this is a survival issue, and I will die if I accept this. And then through, you know, kind of shedding those, those layers, it becomes easier. So Really good um, point, Robert. I really appreciate it, my brother. Thanks so much. Right. Thank you. Okay, talk to you later. We're going to go to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, hi. Uh, yeah, this is John in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I've been really enjoying your show. Uh, I called in a couple of weeks ago made a comment, but uh, one thing I wanted to bring up in the Old Testament, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and all of them back there, the children of Israel, a lot of them had turned to worshiping a false god by the name of Moloch. And when they did this, they some of them offered their children in sacrifice and fire to this god. And they would there was a giant statue with big hands that was made out of metal, and they would heat this statue up, glowing red, and they were required to put their baby on that and let, listen to it cry and scream and not show any emotion. And I have to ask this question. Uh, this doctrine of hellfire that has been preached so many years by so many different denominations and things, what is the difference between that God who punishes you for not loving and, and worshiping him and throwing you in eternal fire and this false God, Moloch, who has people sacrifice their children in fire? And in that particular verse in the Old Testament, I don't have it in front of me right now, but... Uh, God actually comes in and, and chastises them over this, and he says, he makes this statement, he says, the very thought of ever burning my children in fire has never entered my mind. Wow. That and, is uh, a great I, I can insight. I get that scripture, but I don't have it handy, but it's in Daniel, I believe. And uh, That is anyway, awesome. <laughs> if God doesn't lie, and he's not a man that he doesn't lie, why would he make that statement there and then later on start preaching hellfire? Wow. That is really, really good, John. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Good One stuff. One last thing. One last thing. Micah 7, 18, and 19. This is a beautiful verse in the, in, in the Old Testament. And I'm just going to read it quickly. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and that will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Wow. Beautiful. John, this is a God. Listen, the good news is of this God that comes to do total reconciliation after we have had to punish ourselves, basically, for our uh, separation from him, basically. I will say that, all right? And, you know... The good news that if you don't love me, I'll throw you in hell forever is not good news. Amen. But that, but that is. And congratulations on the truth that you've been revealing to the people on your program. And I hope that, that people that are, have the spirit of Jesus in their heart will accept it and understand that total reconciliation is a beautiful doctrine. It is, John. Thank you so much for your insights. Great stuff. I really appreciate it. Okay, man. God bless you. Bye-bye. Keep it up. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, Charlie in Salt Lake, Revelation uh, 1411, wants to know what I think. Uh, it says, uh, and the smoke of the torment sends up forever and ever, and they have no 
uh, rest day and night. And we read this last week, the forever and ever is aeon to aeon, and it's age to age. And so that's what I mean. That's what I think of that passage. It forever and ever was translated by the King James writers, but it, uh, it does not mean forever and ever. It means from age to age. And so a um, lot of questions about that. Look at, go to tentmakers.org or tentmakers.com. I don't know which it is. There is probably the greatest receptacle of all the information you can find about uh, hell and lake of fire and punishment and all that stuff. Uh, check that out because it will help you out a lot. Uh, listen, we have, uh, we have uh, Derek and Danita from, from Colorado saying, hi, gang, and we say hi back to them. Uh, somebody sent this to me, and I really appreciate it, D. Johnson. Uh, it's an article that was written by uh, Mullenberg, Bill Mullenberg, and it says, on leaving the church. There are many Christians who have stopped going to church. This is a blog. They have not given up on God. They have not renounced their faith. They have not denied Christ. They have not become pagans. They simply are no longer going to church. This is happening. Uh, what, that this is happening is not a matter of doubt, but why this is happening is difficult to answer. And then he cites a recent article entitled The Rise of the Dunwith Church Population. And it looks at this scene primarily in America and it doesn't give us that many clear uh, indications of why, but he goes on and uh, talks and talks, but he says maybe, and here's some of the reasons why people are giving that they don't go to church anymore. Many believers are growing tired of the celebrity culture in our churches. Yeah, here's, here, here's a, you know, a man from, wow, he's done, come on up. Uh, many believers are fed up with the incessant entertainment and worldly amusements found in the churches. When are we going to wake up, you guys? We're losing them because they're not getting fed. Many believers are not being fed the Word of God is the next one. Many believers are being put off by the attempt to cater solely to youth while ignoring other people's needs. You know, and it's true. That's what the LDS, they focus on the youth and keep the youth program going. That's the lifeblood for building churches. How about helping people, you know, no matter their age? Many believers are tired of being bench warmers. They have no role to play. People want to get involved. Uh, many believers are weary of the constant need to be relevant at the expense of biblical orthodoxy. Many believers are looking for the real deal. They want an encounter with God Almighty, not the razzmatazz of a stage production. Many believers are desiring general Holy Ghost revival, not pep talks, self-help seminars, or me-centered gospel. Many believers are starving for the reality of first century Christianity. Goes on and says they have had enough of Christianity. They're fed up with church and uh, that it does, it does not resemble anything that is found in the early part of the New Testament. On and on and on. We've been talking about this for two years. Why? Because it's, it's, it's obvious Met a guy came to church here last week, said that he and his wife came out of Mormonism, went around, had some good Christian friends invite him to a special church, were appalled by what they saw. They have adopted the idea of we will not plant roots anywhere. We're going to go around and just visit constantly different churches because we can't find a place where we are feeling like we're fed and not part of a show and a machine where we're being used and churned out to fit their purposes. I sincerely believe, truly believe, 
the reason that we get together for church, if at all, is to hear the Word of God taught verse by verse the best that we can do. I think fellowship's good, some programs, whatever you want that fine, but the reason is to hear the Word of God. And all the rest of the stuff is just smoke. LDS Kid writes, I'm not the best reader. I love doing research and digging into things, but I find it hard to sit down and read the Bible. Is there anything that you might suggest to make it easier? Well, first of all, your former LDS, I would not use your King James LDS version. I would get a regular old Bible. NIV is easier to read. ESV is easier to read. New King James, easier to read. King James, one of the more difficult. So find a Bible that you can read. You might pray before you start. Open my eyes, God. Start in John. Don't start in Genesis. And, um, and, uh, and uh, get the easiest version and just start, just start reading that. Next question, what Bible do I prefer? I prefer the Thompson Chain Bible. The reason is, is because it doesn't have any commentary in it by men of what I should think about the passages. All it does is chain references from one reference to the next to the next. So in the beginning, God, you'll have about three things, beginnings. And it gives you the next, next to it, the next beginnings verse in the chain throughout the Bible. God, the chain going all the way through. All the different subjects, all the way through. And so what you're doing is you're learning about the Bible from the Bible. You're not learning it about what men have said. So I like the Thompson chain. Can you tell me about the priesthood? Is it still here on earth? It is. There is a priesthood that's here on earth. Jesus Christ is the high priest and everybody who follows him, male or female, slaves or uh, uh, free people, um, anybody is a priesthood holder under him as the high priest. That's how it works. And so we are offering sacrifices. We're doing service in the temple, things like that. Uh, we're doing baptisms of other members. Women can do it. Men can do it, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there's no priesthood to do ordinances uh, like the LDS. If that's your question, no. Do we need to be baptized? Uh, you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. I think water baptism is a very nice thing. I think it is, empowers you in some way. I think it's symbolic. I think it's unifying. I'm not against it. We do them. I was baptized. Does the Bible say anything about drinking? I drink a couple of beers while watching football. Once in a while, I go out with my wife and I have a drink. Does the Bible say not to drink? The Bible says don't get drunk. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say not to drink. You remember Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. What made it the big miracle? The wine was uh, fermented in a period of time. So it was real wine. It was good wine, they call it in the story. Hey, you have brought the good wine out last. And, and so, I mean, it, this is the good stuff, you see. So Jesus' his first miracle is turning water into wine. Wine is good for the stomach, Scripture says. It's just like anything. Don't get blamoring, drunk, foolish idiot, wreck your car, wreck lives, become an alcoholic. If you're going to drink, do it reasonably. If you can't, don't do it. Uh, and those are the questions from him. Finally, we have a question, one minute left. And this says, I'm going to leave on an incendiary note. I am a gay man and I'm married to a wonderful man. Are we going to hell? Does Jesus love us? Two questions. Are you going to hell? I don't know if you're going to hell. Do you love the Lord? Do you pursue Christ? Do you believe in him? That's, that's how, why you go to hell. You don't go to hell for being a gay man. 
And I don't know if you go to hell for being a married, to a, married to another wonderful gay man. Jesus said, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. It's an earthly institution. If homosexuals are getting married and you love Jesus, love Jesus. I'm a heterosexual. I got married and I love Jesus and I have all kinds of problems myself. And so does everybody else. Do you have faith? Do you trust? It's not my business. It's not the church's business. It's not our business. Our business is to preach the gospel, not to stand against homosexuals any more than we stand against adulterers. It's all sin. Wherever you are, do you love Jesus? Does Jesus love you? Of course he loves you. You'll, you'll note that Jesus never mentioned homosexuality in all the writings we have uh, that relate to him in the Gospels. I don't know why, but he didn't. And uh, so take that into consideration. Uh, let's love each other. Let's not judge. Let's let God be the judge. And uh, we'll go from there. You guys have a great year. Look forward to 2015. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys.